0: you're here this morning seeking baptism for yourself or for your kids, just want you to know Thomas and Jill will be back soon. <laughs> um, our scripture text comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 9 through 15. This morning we're launching into a, a new sermon series, and I invite you to um, listen now for the word of the Lord through, through Mark's gospel. and he was with the wild beasts, a curious detail, and the angels uh, waited on him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. This is the word of the Lord. Pray to God. Let's pray together. Holy God, we are here seeking a word that only you can give to us. And so be gracious to us as we listen. We pray in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, the word made flesh. Amen. The first time that got into trouble was in the sixth grade. I know, it's a good track record. I'm sure that I had been in trouble before, but uh, this is the time that I most vividly remember. It was the first time I actually remember getting in trouble. My friends and I were playing with uh, pogs on the playground. Any uh, mid-90s kids here? Anyone? I see that hand. Thank you. Millennials, we have to unite and stick together. World's out to get us. Um, We were playing with pogs. Now, pogs are like like a bottle cap kind of game. It's like a trading card, and apparently you could play for keeps, which was like, considered a form of gambling so schools banned them um, banned the practice of playing them on the playground my friends and I played them anyways we got caught it was a terrible hiding spot apparently Um, and one of the recess teachers caught us and sent us to the wall uh, for punishment so that was the when you got in trouble in my elementary school you had to go stand on the wall for the rest of recess fair enough so far um, so good we broke the rules we got caught take the punishment. But that's not really why I'm telling you the story. That's not really how we got in trouble. Um, My memory on how it developed is a little bit foggy, as these things conveniently are. And I'm pretty sure that I wasn't the leader of what came next. I'm almost positive. Um, Somehow, five of us, all five of us linked arms and started walking around the playground, chanting, we are the wall. Um, as you can probably guess like this did not go over well with our uh, our recess teachers did not go over well with our teachers with our administrators and like we were suspended I got suspended from school for a day for this act of civil disobedience Um, why do I tell you this story I don't know uh, I have no idea. No, I, I tell you the story because the, what, what happened next is um, it's very vivid in my memory. Um, what happened next is I went home <laughs> and had to talk to my parents about what had happened and um, ex- try to explain to them why I did what I did and they you know, explained to me the punishment that I would receive for, for that. Um, they did the whole we're not angry, we're disappointed thing, you, know? you get that? Very effective, highly effective. And what, what they were disappointed about, they said, um, was that, in, in their words, they said, John, this is, this is not who you are. You've heard that, right? This is not, this is not who you are. In other words, my parents weren't, uh, they weren't just upset that I, had, that I had acted out, right? They were upset because this acting out was kind of evidence to them of some uh, rival identity within me. Um, some story that I was believing about myself that they feared wasn't, wasn't true. And uh, as it turns out, for those of you who, who know me well, it probably actually wasn't a rival identity, but my actual identity at work. Um, there, but their point actually still stands, right? Their point about our identity still stands. The, the story that we claim for ourselves has tremendous power over the way that we live our lives, the decisions that we make, the decisions that we fail to make of all stem from our identity, the story we believe about our lives. It's from our identity that we get a sense of self, that kind of core and durable self that's able to um, cross different boundaries of situations and different hats that we wear. Uh, it's from our identity that we get a sense of, of worth, uh, a confidence that we have value in the world. And so this morning, we're beginning a new sermon uh, series entitled How to Be Yourself, uh, that's going to take us through the rest of the summer. And this series is really all about um, learning to claim the truth of who we are as beloved sons and as beloved daughters of God in the midst of a culture that, uh, that mostly implicitly, but sometimes very explicitly, tells us other things about who we are. Things like you are what you are able to achieve. Uh, you're, you are what you, you are able to accumulate and gather and create for yourself. You are what maybe other people uh, say and think about you, particularly like on the Internet. Um, but when the New Testament speaks about our identity, when the New Testament speaks about our identity, it uses uh, two words. It's a phrase, a small phrase, in Christ. That's the word. that's the way it describes our identity. Now over the last couple hundred years, in modernity, as uh, individualism has kind of emerged, we have tended to talk about our identity in Christ as Christ in me, as inviting Christ into my life or as in- inviting Christ into my heart. The New Testament doesn't really use that language that often. In fact, it only uses that language six times total throughout the entire, uh, all the pages of the New Testament. And you might be surprised to hear that it only refers to Jesus in your heart one time throughout the entire New Testament. By contrast, this phrase in Christ appears over 165 times throughout the pages of the New Testament. Seems kind of overwhelmingly significant that we would pay attention to that. Right? Well, what does this mean? I think what it means is to be in Christ means that, that, that Christ actually shares his identity, invites us into who he is. He shares his identity, his obedience. All the things that apply to him, he shares with us. And so, What God says to Jesus as the Spirit kind of descends upon him at at his baptism, these words that you are my beloved, you are my beloved with with whom I am well pleased. Because we are in Christ, those words are true for us as well. Because we are in Christ, our identity, both this sense of self and this sense of worth, come from us being beloved sons and daughter uh, of God. You are this, I am this, we are already this. We don't have to do anything to make that true. And yet, the enormous spiritual task ahead of us is to claim this identity and actually live our lives based on this understanding of ourselves. And as you know, like this isn't easy. It's actually very difficult to pull off. Most of us, I think, fail constantly to claim the truth Uh, Of who we are. And as I mentioned, one of the reasons, I think, is due to the fact that that our culture, a culture that we are very much a part of, um, tends to kind of speak pretty loudly uh, about who we are, and we tend to kind of believe, believe what the culture tells us. Uh, Years ago, Henry Allen said that there are generally five cultural myths uh, that our culture kind of tells us that keeps us from believing this truth. I am what I do, I am what I have, I am what others uh, say or think about me. I am nothing more, uh, I'm nothing more than my worst moment, and I am nothing less than my best moment. I am what I do. I am what I have. I am what others say or think about me. I am nothing less than my best moment, and I am nothing more than my worst moment. So for the next few weeks, uh, we're actually going to explore each of these, each of these myths, a little bit uh, more closely together, so we can kind of learn how to spot them in our lives, uh, so that, like, with the hopes that we won't um, we won't be as dependent upon them to tell us to tell us who we are. The first of these myths uh, we'll talk about today: I am I am what I do. I am what I do. It's not hard to see how we believe this story about our lives, right? We live in a a a, a society that is uh, super busy. Crazy busy, right? Uh, Highly productive and and achievement-oriented kind of all the time. The first question um, that you are likely to ask another person or another person is likely to ask you when you meet for the first time is, what do you do? What do you do? And uh, for those of you who have a job, you usually usually respond uh, by telling them about the, the job that you have as if that's the sum total of what you do. And for those of you who, who might not have a job, uh, at least a job that pays you, uh, you might feel like you need to respond that way, right? To tell them about your job so that they know what you do. I have friends who, um, go, having gone through periods of unemployment in their lives, actually like, avoid large gatherings of people where they're going to meet people because they know that question is coming. And it signals that our culture really values what you do, and by what you do, they usually mean what you do for a job. Uh, Derek Thompson, who's a, a journalist I follow and, and really admire, he wrote an article for The Atlantic entitled, Workism is a Making, is making uh, Americans Miserable. Workism is Making Americans Miserable. His observation is that um, with the decline of traditional faith in, in the United States, that, uh, that work is actually functioning like a new, a new religion, uh, his argument is that Americans are actually not less religious. We've just turned our religious zeal to other activities. And work is one of those things. Work promises a fulfilling identity, especially for young people. Right? Millennials, um, maybe more than any other group, have kind of bought into the idea that like, we have to do what we love. And that by doing what we love, we're going to change the world. It doesn't really apply to um, one of the most common jobs in the U.S. as a cashier doesn't really apply necessarily to that job, that vocation even, Um, but work promises to give you a fulfilling identity and a fulfilling community. But Thompson says ultimately it fails to deliver on both of these these things. And he says it's not necessarily about making more money, climbing up the social ladder. He says it's more emotional, it's actually more spiritual. More than ever before, uh, people are reporting that at work is the place that they feel most of themselves. But what Thompson points out, both in the uh, the article and then in an interview uh, later, is that work is one of the most merciless places um, in our society. He writes that to be a workist is is to worship a God with firing power. The I am what I do myth is not only about work, though, right? We believe this myth uh, whenever trying to do enough of anything to kind of try to create or achieve a sense of satisfaction and fulfillment. How many of you remember uh, the movie Chariots of Fire? Great movie. Great soundtrack, actually. Um, You probably remember from that movie the character Eric Liddell, right? He's kind of the star of that movie. You remember his famous quote that when I run, I feel his pleasure. It's like, man, it fills me with all the feels. Um, But do you remember the other guy, Harold Abrams? Anybody remember Harold Abrams? Yeah, so when asked, uh, when asked what actually motivated him to get the gold, gold medal, here's what he said. He said, when the gun goes off, I've got 10 seconds. I've got 10 seconds to justify my existence. That's the logic of this myth. I've got 10 seconds to justify my existence. You might be thinking, uh, I don't know, that sounds pretty extreme. <laughs> like, I'm, not, I'm just not that ambitious. Uh, maybe not. Maybe not, but consider, I just want you to consider a couple of ways that this myth actually might be operating under the surface in your life um, in kind of very subtle ways. And the first, first thing I'm going to ask you to pay attention to is pay attention to where you are most tired. Where are you most worn out? Wherever you are most tired, look closely and you might find that you are striving to validate your existence through what you do. It doesn't have to be your job, it could be exercise, it could be um, parenting, uh, it could be parenting. Um, <laughs> it could be politics, it could be parenting. Um, it could be a, a form of activism, it could be trying to be morally virtuous that is wearing you out. Um, hear me when I say of course that like, you might just be tired because you're doing a lot, that's totally fair. Um, because maybe you're parenting. Um, But, right, but if in kind of considering how this works in your life, considering the places that you are most tired, that you are most worn out, if you find that it's due to an excessive kind of striving to prove your value, to prove your worth, maybe to yourself or to, to other people around you, to God maybe, to justify your existence, it right, might not be 10 seconds to justify your existence. It might be, like, one meeting to justify your existence. It might be one project, one deal. It might be one week of work, 40 hours to justify my existence. It might be a sign to you that you are placing too much value on what you do. It might be. Secondly, um, think about how often you use if-then logic to evaluate your life and where you're at. If I can just blank then. If I can just make partner then. If I can just get into graduate school then. If I can just um, if my kids are just successful then. If I can just get into the right neighborhood so my kids can be in the right school then. If I could just lose 10 pounds then. Um, This is called something called the arrival fallacy right? Some benchmark that we've uh, created in our mind that when we reach it, we will feel like we've arrived. And it's called the arrival fallacy because it's a complete lie, right? It's complete hogwash because uh, as soon as you reach whatever benchmark that is, you will set another one and another one and another one. And it just kind of goes on and on and on. If this is bumming you out, let me draw your attention back to Jesus. After Jesus is baptized by John, um, we're told this great little detail that the Spirit drives him into the wilderness. And I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but it's a detail I don't think we should, we should rush past. Whatever awaits Jesus in the wilderness, uh, he's not going to face it alone. But the Spirit who j- has driven him there will accompany him, which is an ongoing reminder of God's grace, an ongoing reminder of God's presence, an ongoing reminder of what he's heard as he's been baptized, that you are my beloved. With you I am well pleased. In the wilderness, we're told that he is tempted by Satan. And Mark's too busy to kind of tell us everything that happened there. He tells us about the wild beasts, but that's about it. Uh, But from the other gospel accounts, we can kind of fill in what happened. And we know that these temptations that Christ goes through um, are all kind of about making a name for himself all about defining himself by kind of what he can he can do what he can create for himself they they function like kind of kind of like ancient arrival fallacies right that that after Jesus performs in a certain way he will arrive at power he'll arrive at at wealth he'll arrive at a kind of status and yet Jesus resists these temptations how the short answer is that he's Jesus Uh, If we dig in a little bit more, we might find that that all else fades before the knowledge of God's uh, approval, of God's blessing. And that that is actually something that can happen in real time, in real history. That that kind of knowledge, that that kind of approval, that kind of blessing actually, actually can have that impact. The things that we can create for ourselves kind of fades into the background. But when Jesus emerged from the waters of baptism, he became the first citizen of the kingdom of God kind of completely free from the trivial and kind of fleeting ways that we often keep score. And catch this, he models for us. He models for us that what we do flows from who we are, not the other way around. Now you might expect me to tell you to be more like Jesus. Preachers do that sometimes, maybe too much. You might be expect me to give you something to do so that you can resist these temptations when you experience them yourself. But by this point, I I really hope that what you can see is that this reflex to do something is how we kind of ended up here in the first place. So I want to caution us against kind of trading one performance for, for another, even if that performance is for God. I also actually don't think that Mark's point here is Jesus beat the devil and so can you. I don't think that's his point. The original community that would have received this this gospel, that would have used it for their formation, that would have used it to create disciples, they knew something about the wilderness that we might miss. They knew that the wilderness is a place of testing. They know that it's a place of wandering. But ultimately, ultimately the wilderness is a place of failing. It's a place of failure. And so what Mark is doing here, Mark is rewriting a story. He's showing us that where we tend to fail, fail, Jesus doesn't. Where we are prone to over-identify with what we can accomplish, the things that we can do, Jesus isn't. And his first task after he emerges from the wilderness is to announce that this, this new thing has happened. The kingdom of God is here. It's come near. The time has come for the kingdom of God. And in the kingdom of God, we are actually free to participate in our work. We're free to participate and live in the world without needing it, without depending on it to tell us who we are. I hope that you see, I really hope that you see the grace at work here, because it's going to continue to kind of show up throughout this series. The story our culture tends to tell about our lives is one that that lacks a lot of grace. It's merciless. In Derek Thompson's word, "To, to be a workist is to worship a God with firing power. It's falsifiable. Notice that before Jesus does anything, that God tells him that he is beloved. Before Jesus goes into the wilderness, before Jesus resists temptation, before Satan, Jesus, or God, delights in him. And this is the same delight. This is the same love with which God loves us because we are in Christ. And if something in you kind of recoils at that, something in, in you kind of thinks that that's just a bit too much, if it feels maybe kind of embarrassing to hear that kind of overly affectionate language about you applied to you, it's kind of the point. That's what grace is. And like Jesus, this grace is given to you before you do anything at all. And so for Christ's sake, and in his words, believe, believe the good news. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Would you pray with me? Holy God, we, we are often caught up in this myth in so many different ways in our lives. Believing that what we can create for ourselves, achieve for ourselves, is the truest thing about us. Forgive us for that. Forgive us and give us your grace. Be gracious to us that we might believe the truest thing about us is that you love us and that we are included in your life. That we share in the love between the Father and the Son. And that the Spirit is the ongoing reminder of this grace in our lives. We pray all of this. Believing believing the good news of your love in Jesus Christ. Amen.